The full crew's here, and we've got stories to talk about. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Laura's up first because we're talking about Lake Erie. Is road salt turning the freshwater lake into a salt lake? Might those whales on the big waterfront mural someday feel right at home in our source of drinking water? Laura, this is the first time in my entire time in Cleveland that when somebody says, is the road salt a problem, that the answer might be yes. Well, because it keeps accumulating, right? Salt doesn't just go away. Since the 1970s, the use of road salt in the United States has tripled to an estimated 22 million tons a year on our roads, on our driveways, on our highways, on our thoroughfares, on our sidewalks. All of that washes into storm drains that flows into waterways. And in northern Ohio, that means it ends up in Lake Erie. So this year, the Cuyahoga County Soil and Water Conservation District joined with the Wisconsin SaltWise program to promote Winter Salt Awareness Week to focus on the overuse of road salt. And that's the first time I can remember they're doing that. We, we can't say for sure how big of a problem salt is. But research shows that trouble is coming, especially near the mouths of rivers. Because think about it, the rivers are what's push, picking up, you know, hundreds of miles of of tributaries. And that's coming into the lake. And that could hurt the entire freshwater food chain. I do want to point out that that mural that we're talking about on the, uh, the lakefront, it's supposed to illustrate how all of the world's waterways are connected, which think about it, the salt is also doing, because if the salt flows into a little creek on your property, it's going to end up in Lake Erie. Well, what's interesting to me about this is we asked this question back, I know it's almost 20 years ago. It's 18, 20 years ago. We sent a reporter out to, to look into this and I could not find the story. I was almost certain we wrote one, but the answer at the time was no, that the volume of the salt compared to the volume of the H2O in the lake is not enough to make a change. Plus, the lake flushes itself. It's a waterway. The water does go out at one end and it comes in on the other, I, I, which surprised me back then because I would have thought the amount of salt that we pour on the roads would have an effect. This is the first time somebody has said, yeah, it, it actually could. And that's distressing. And all of the, the inf- this is another great story by Pete Krause. It had all this information about how we're oversalting, that we're putting mm-hmm. on, what was it, three or five times as much as we probably need. And that's making it worse. And the reasoning is that is we don't have the latest technology on all of our our salt trucks, basically. And ODOT does. They have spent time and energy and money to upgrade their equipment. So they're actually spreading something like 240% less salt in last winter than they did even in 2018. And they were still able to meet their goal of clearing the roads within two hours of the end of a snow event. So that's pretty incredible. But all these little small towns that we talk about all the time, the balkanization of Cuyahoga County, we have 57 municipalities and two townships. They don't all have the latest technology. And that means they're going to spread too much salt if they're not calibrating it correctly. Or they haven't been able to switch over to brine, which is a liquid concentration. And that could cut down on the amount of salt. But if you're just doing it with your old equipment and, you know, it's like fertilizer, right? You're just throwing it out there on the roads and the size of the rock salt matters, how big you buy, that's going to make a difference. So not all of these communities are using best practices because they don't have the money to. So that's one area we really should look at. 
I know in Lyndhurst, we had piles of salt in the roadway. So obviously their hoppers aren't working very well. There, That's too bad. There was, though, back when I thought we originally did this story, a move to use beet juice because it didn't contain the brine and it was effective. But you don't really hear much discussion of that anymore. I haven't heard much about that. And you're right. I feel like every couple of winters, sometimes the salt supplies get low and they start talking about what else we should be doing. I don't know if it was the pinkness of the beet juice, but they're talking about brine more than that anymore. And sometimes they talked about other sediments they could put on, but anything you're putting on the roads is going to end up in the lake, which I think is the main point. And Lake Ontario, because it is the last lake in that system, like you talked about, going from Superior to Huron and Michigan and, and all the way down, that is probably the saltiest lake, but it's it's a lot deeper than Lake Erie. So it might, oh, it has the most salt. Now, is it the saltiest? Probably not because there's more water there. But this does influence the the ecosystems in the lake, zooplankton that feeds on the algae, their food for the fish in the lake, they're very vulnerable to salt pollution. So if you damage that small part of the food chain, you're going to damage it all the way up. What what I wonder, and I don't think we have the answer here, is in, in places where the snowpack is much, much heavier, uh, I can't imagine that they spend the whole winter salting and and clearing it that i that people must get more accustomed to driving on snowy roads i mean in alaska for instance do they pour salt on every time it snows it would would be all the time you grew up in canada did they attack it the same way or did they just learn to drive on a snowpack well i grew up like and i moved here when i was four but it's actually like in between all the lakes so it's not it's not like your typical canadian you know northern climate i don't know the answer to that i do know that they don't have any curves on the roads where i was from so and you just would end up in a ditch so they probably don't salt as much i i think we should look at like duluth minnesota right like a great lakes town that they might have snow chain snow tires that they put on or chains. I know in, you know, if you're in Colorado and a snow event, like they expect you to put chains on your tires and nobody has that here. Well, and the problem with that here would be the snow doesn't last long and then the chains would be damaging our already needy road system. It's just an interesting quandary that we really should start paying attention to. This is the first time they have found this increase. This has not been seen before. So the red flag is there. In addition to all the other stuff we flush into that lake, salt could be a problem, something we all should take into consideration because we do deal with it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Talk about flip-floppers. Have all three of the Republican candidates for the U.S. Senate changed their position on abortion? What is it with these guys? Whatever happened to making a decision based on principle, not how you think the wind is blowing, and standing up for what you believe? Lisa, do any of them do that here? I love the headline to this story, by the way. It says, you know, they, the candidates wanted to let voters decide until voters decided. <laughs> yes, indeed. That was great. Yeah, so there was a, a debate among the Republican Senate candidates here in Cleveland last week, and the debate moderator, Colleen Marshall, who's a Columbus TV anchor, asked them if abortion is a federal issue, and they all said yes, despite prior claims. So let's roll the tape, as John Stewart used to say. Um, so Frank LaRose, Secretary of State and Senate candidate back in an August interview with NBC's Chuck Todd. He said pushing this down to the states is a reasonable approach for now. He said if a federal abortion ban or restrictions came to me in the Senate, he would vote for it. 
But during the debate last week, he says we should have a bare minimum at the federal level. We shouldn't allow late-term abortions, and he would vote for the strictest legislation that would conceivably pass the Senate. Uh, candidate Matt Dolan of Chagrin Falls, back in a Fox News interview back in May of 2022, he always said that Roe versus Wade should be returned to the states. But during the debate last week, he uh, said that the uh, Ohio Abortion Rights Amendment, which passed in November with 57% of the vote, he said that that was terrible. And he said broad exemptions would allow for late-term abortions, which is a big Republican talking point, by the way. And he says we have to step up on the federal level, and he would want, uh, you know, bans at 15 weeks at the federal level with the three exceptions, which I assume are rape, incest, or the health of the mother. Cleveland businessman Bernie Moreno, back then in a December interview with CBT News, which is an automotive industry publication, he said voters are best equipped to make decisions. He says Ohio has made its position crystal clear with the November vote. He says, I'm pro-life, but the rest of the nation is not with me on that. And he says, we need to win hearts and minds. But in the debate, he called for a 15-week ban. He says still it's mostly a state issue, but he says he could reach a consensus or thinks that the Congress can reach a consensus on a 15-week floor, no federal money for abortion, which is true now, actually, and further restrictions at the state level. So Bernie Moreno is actually sounding reasonable. Except here. he's saying it should be a state issue, but it shouldn't be. And just in case anybody missed right. it, he's endorsed by Donald Trump. Look, there's the thing you need to pay attention to. These three people are running to represent the state of Ohio in the Senate. The state of Ohio voted in a landslide, more than a landslide, to set the abortion rules that the voters want. And for Matt Dolan to say, yeah, they didn't know what they were doing, that is so condescending to voters that he shouldn't be allowed to represent them. If he has that little faith in the voters, why should he be asking them for their votes? Because he thinks they're morons who don't know what they're doing. They, they want to represent us, and then they want to slap us all in the face saying, I don't care how you voted, I'm going to do something different. They want to be lord and master, not representative. And like I said, they're using this, you know, they, they fear that this will allow late-term abortions. But I don't think anybody, any doctor, anybody would agree to an abortion after 22 weeks. So what do they mean by a late-term abortion? And it, that's not it's really It's dog happening. whistle stuff. They're just playing games. And look, for anybody listening to this, think about it. Think about how you voted on that abortion issue. These three would stuff it in your face. Sherrod Brown supports it. If that's important to you, think about that in November, because these three guys would negate your vote. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Amazon co-founder Mackenzie Scott gave Cleveland schools a whopping amount of money from the settlement she made when she divorced Jeff Bezos. Originally, we were told that that one-time money would go to transformative projects. Layla, what's happened yeah, to it? Yeah, this money came to Cleveland schools back in 2022. It was $20 million, a completely no-strings-attached gift from Mackenzie Scott. And Eric Gordon, who was the CEO of Cleveland schools at the time, decided that this money would be used for enriching experiences that kids really don't get in school and, and might not be able to afford otherwise. These were things like travel or college campus visits or developing volunteer programs that would benefit the neighborhoods around the schools. But he wanted 
wanted the entire CMSD community to have a say in how the money would be spent. So he set up this student-led committee that would handle these micro-grants. And students, faculty could apply for them. And then the committee would, you know, had come up with like a scoring rubric. And they took this very, very seriously. The idea was that they would give out $4 million in grants a year for five years. And, uh, you know, after the first year, they had given out tons of money for these enriching experiences. Well, then Eric Gordon left the district at the end of this past school year, and he was replaced by Garrett Morgan. We first caught kind of a whiff that something was amiss when uh, Morgan gave his first State of the Schools address in November, and he spent most of that speech talking about his listening tour and how much he values the input and feedback of the kids and parents and faculty of the district. But then in the middle of the speech, he kind of drops in that the federal COVID relief money that has been sustaining the district is about to vanish and that the district is going to be facing some tough financial choices coming up. And you know, that said, he promised that if there are cuts to be made, they'll begin in the district central office. And he said that any other financial decisions would, would be made with input from the school's community and, and a focus group that he was going to put together. Well, what he didn't tell the audience that day is that not 24 hours earlier, he had already made a serious financial decision without consulting the people who it would affect most. He had gone ahead and asked the school board to claw back the $16 million that was left of the Mackenzie Scott money and dump that into the general fund of the district to be put toward that funding gap. He says he consulted with the school administrators who were involved in putting the advisory committee together and that they told him it was the best use for the money, but he did not bother to consult the students who were deeply involved in giving out those grants, who had spent their whole summer refining the process that they had developed for that. In fact, they didn't even know that was happening until a few weeks later, after the school board had voted to approve that decision, Morgan came to the students' committee in December and told them they were, you know, completely crushed by this news. And they felt really betrayed by the CEO who until then had really portrayed himself as a collaborator and a listener. And, um, you know, when Hannah Drown asked him about it, he basically said two things. He said that the vote happened in a public meeting, so the kids could have come to the meeting to be heard on the matter. And also he said, I, I wasn't involved in the creation of this program, so I didn't break any promises. It wasn't my promise to break. Yeah, it, it, this is kind of an astounding story, and it's and it's again the discussion we have fairly regularly in this podcast about one-time money. You know, the county council created an enormous amount of slush funds with one-time ARPA money and just frittered it away instead of putting it into transformative projects. Back a long time ago, when I covered city council, the the city got a huge infusion of cash, a refund in unemployment compensation money. And the council carved up 11 million of it into little slush funds. And when the mayor was trying to do something big with it, this is one time money. Mackenzie Scott gave this money to the school district with no strings attached. But but the idea was, wow, we're, we don't get this kind of infusion very often. Let's change lives with it. And to just inject it into the general fund to to balance in the shortfall that might exist now instead of dealing with that in other responsible ways, you just give up the chance. And he wasn't public about it. He was actually deceptive about it. My the, the One of the most disturbing parts of this story is when he went to talk to the kids, he talked in such cerebral language, no one knew what he was right. saying. So they asked him to come back after lunch. And he came back, he took three questions, and then he left right. again. 
leaving them high and dry. It's just a slap in the face. Very disappointing. It story. really is. It really is. I, I to me, I, I'm most offended. Having sat in the audience and listened to him make the promise that any cuts would happen would begin in the central office. Um, you know, making it sound like he was the one making the sacrifices when you know quietly he had already gone ahead to ask the school board to. To, to take this money and put it back in the general fund without consulting the kids who had poured their heart and soul into administering this program. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, and Eric Gordon was so protective of this money. When there were hard times in the past, he would say, we're not going to tap into that pot of money because we have promised, we've set it aside for these enriching experiences that kids couldn't afford on their own. And uh, and I, it's just it's just really offensive that this is how it how it came down. I think his, I think Morgan's insinu, the implication here is that he would never have made that decision with that money, that he would have put it straight in the general fund to begin with. I feel like that's what he's trying to say when he's like, well, I wasn't the one who broke the promise. I, I didn't make that decision from the beginning. Although if he really felt strongly about that, he should have been far oh, more transparent yeah. about it at the speech. He could have said, look, I made a really tough decision yesterday. We're, we're hurting for money. I don't see a way out. I was going to cut the administrative offices, but I don't see it. So I'm taking that Mackenzie Scott money and putting it into the budget because I have to, yeah. because education matters, whatever he wants to say. But he didn't. He was deceptive about it. He was deceptive with the kids. And if he felt so righteous about it, why be deceptive? It's just a shame. It's one-time money. Governments rarely get it. And what they Eric Gordon was so much more devoted to, wow, Let's make a difference. Let's try and do something that has an impact. And his replacement doesn't seem to have that same vision. Doesn't it make you think, why would anyone ever give Cleveland schools money again yeah. if it's just going to go into the regular general fund? And and they made all of those changes, I feel like, after well, like, during the pandemic, right, to, to catch kids up and enrich kids' lives. And what are they going to do about all of that? Is it just going to be back to, like, reading, writing, arithmetic under him it just raises this is a wonderful story that hannah drowned it but it raises so many other questions well, about his leadership the jury's out on this guy and when he came the question was how long will he stay because he never stays anywhere more than about two and a half years and he's already been here a year so will he stick around to live with the ramifications of his decision or is he already circulating a resume? Or is he just blowing it up and then yeah, getting out I mean, of I, it's like, yeah. We knew that replacing Eric Gordon would be hard. He was a once-in-a-generation kind of leader. This is a disturbing sign. I hope it's the last one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You'd think that the president of the Cuyahoga County Council would care about the neighborhoods where he owns property. Let's talk about a decrepit building owned by Purnell Jones and what appears to be some special treatment being given to him by Cleveland officials in tearing it down. Turn into you, Another Layla. good story from over the weekend. So please keep in mind as we were talking about this that County Council President Purnell Jones serves on the board of directors for the Cuyahoga Land Bank which says that its mission is in part to alleviate blight like this. So backstory here, in 2008, Jones, through his business, which is Purnell Jones and Son's Funeral Home, bought this big commercial property on the corner of Buckeye and what's today Opportunity Corridor in Cleveland. It used to be a dance hall and a theater at one point, but it has been vacant for the entire time that Jones has owned it. And Three years ago, the city condemned it. Jones told reporter Lucas Taprilli that at one point he planned to renovate it, but the roof had caved in. So it's just been rotting into decrepitude ever since. Well, now it's on the city's list to get demolished. 
This came up for approval at the city's planning commission meeting about a week ago, and the commission members, first of all, were obviously annoyed that the city has to tear down a blighted building that belongs to a public official. But also they mentioned that they're not following their usual process of seeking reimbursement for what's going to be a $106,000 demolition because of the fact that Jones owns it. Normally, the city would reach out to the property owner through certified mail to let them know that this was happening, and then they would tear it down and they'd seek to recover the cost of the demolition, usually by putting a lien on the property or sending the case to a collection agency. But for Jones, the city sent the certified mail, but then also reached out to him directly. Even the city's building and housing director directly contacted him to negotiate this repayment directly with him. And he verbally promised to repay the city this $106,000. But at this commission meeting, the members were like, yeah, we're going to have to see that in writing. So they stayed the demolition of the property until they get that document in hand, which is smart. But you know, so we've got a couple things going on here. This unconscionable fact that our county council president has contributed to the blight in the city of Cleveland for years, and the fact that the city bent over backwards to accommodate him and his and his payment plan. That that's the more disturbing of the two. I look, I, he shouldn't have blighted property. He should represent a higher standard. He should be working to take care of it. But everybody can get into difficult straits. The special treatment is disturbing. There's a quote in that story from the meeting in which they say. You know, we yeah. don't do this. We never do this. This is really unusual that we're doing this. And but your verbal promise isn't enough. We want it written. And that, there shouldn't be special treatment for anybody. It just sends the worst message when you do that that this person counts more than you do. And and you know, the city was trying to walk it back and say, "Hey, no, no, this isn't special. This isn't special." The quote from the meeting says everything you right. need to know about how unusual this is. We don't normally do this, is what they say on the official right. record. I couldn't believe the city officials trying to walk that back, acting like, no, 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 no. It's like, not only are we giving them special treatment, we're trying to conceal right. it. I mean, I think their explanation is kind of like, well, we seek to get repaid and we know Pernell Jones, so we can just contact him directly. It's it's a lot more direct than than going the route of a collection agency or or what have you. Might as well just tap into that relationship to try to get repayment more efficiently. I think that's kind of where their head is on that. But if other property owners don't get the the call from the building and housing director. <laughs> it's um, I don't know that we would have heard about this, except that he has a primary opponent. And so he's very much mixed up in the politics. I'm glad that we got tipped to it because we weren't aware of it. Interesting story by Lucas Dupreele. It's on Cleveland.com. And you're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the best tools that cities have for ensuring their housing stock stays in good shape is a point of sale inspection requires people to get their homes up to code before closing on the sale. Lisa, why is Cleveland City Council resistant to that idea? Well, this is all part of what's called Residence First. It's a big reform of housing code enforcement. It had its first public hearing last week at City Council. Some city council had issues with point-of-sale inspections of vacant homes. Now, this rule would apply to sales or pending sales of vacant one- to three-bedroom homes. The owner is required to get a city inspection and fix any violations within six months, and all of this information is shared with potential buyers. 
Six-month extensions are allowed if substantial progress is made and reasonable, you know, it's a reasonable request. And they really want to help like average Clevelanders, mom, small mom and pop landlords, not out-of-town buyers or other investors. So uh, city council had a few issues about this. Uh, council president Blaine Griffin says he's on the fence. He says, I really don't want to harm the housing market inadvertently. He said it could hurt the little guy trying to sell a vacant home with uh, expensive repairs needed. They could actually sell it at a loss and they might increase the rent if they're a landlord to fund repairs. But building and housing director Sally Martin O'Toole says they're just trying to correct conditions that led to the, the declining value of that home in the first place. Uh, Mike Polensic, the longtime councilman from Collinwood, he's in favor of point of sale. He says he tried to enact it 37 years ago, but he was shut down by the real estate lobby. And he says poor people are being hurt because the city is lax and not being aggressive on, on these violations. Councilman Anthony Hairston says he's concerned by that six-month timeline for repairs. He said it could shut out those weekend warrior rehabbers or neighbor buyouts to head off trouble. And he says also, what is the definition of a vacant property? So yeah, I don't understand the real opposition to this because if a property is in that much trouble, the value's already gone out of it. Frank Jackson never would have considered this because he always felt like it was stepping on the little guy. But for most of the properties we're talking about, you're talking about absentee landlords who have plagued mm -hmm. this city. And mm -hmm. many of our suburbs do this. And if you drive through those suburbs, the houses are largely in good shape because every time they change hands, they've got to meet the minimum standards. I think it's a great program. It's a way of making sure your housing stock looks good and neighborhoods stay vibrant. I don't understand the, the opposition to this, given the current state of housing. It seems like Justin Bibb is trying to do something bold here. And the traditional lethargic council is just being in quicksand. Well, and it's going to be interesting. They're going to have a second hearing this week, and they're going to be hearing from realtor groups who kind of, you know, as as Polensic said, you know, spiked this decades ago. So I agree with you. I mean, there's like 3,000 homes that are vacant in the area, most of them on the east side. Over half of them are owned by investors. And like they said, they're not going to give a break to investors. They I, I want to say the little, guy. the little guy has been hurt by the current system. I completely reject Blaine's argument on this. If you're selling the property, the mm -hmm. buyer should know what needs to be done to bring it to code. And that should play into what the sale price is of the property. And it should be brought to code. And tenants deserve to live in a property that is to code. And that is exactly the point of this policy. If you don't do it, you're just going to continue the blight. That's that's just a fact. And then Pernell Jones will buy it and it'll get torn down. Look, th there's, there's proof of concept here in the inner ring suburbs. This has worked for a long time. And Cleveland's resistance to it, it, it just doesn't make sense because their housing stock has steadily deteriorated as a result. I, I, I'm with you, Layla. I think this is a great idea. They should do it. And, and if they find that some mom and pop homeowners are having trouble, they get community development block grants that you can use for things like that. So they could put together some assistance programs to help people in specific cases. Another interesting story you're listening to today in Ohio. We've learned in recent years that microplastics are everywhere in waterways and getting into drinking water. This is a day where I have to say the word water over and over again, revealing my <laughs> New Jersey roots. 
<laughs> what are some researchers finding about removing those microplastics, Laura? Well, microplastics are a macro problem in the Great Lakes. And I didn't even realize how much, and I'd been studying the lake. We're talking about teeny tiny little pieces. Well, where a microplastics roughly the size of a dust mite, which is really small. We're also talking about nanoplastics, which are no larger than one micron. And they're the most dangerous because you can drink them without knowing, and they can get stuck in your organs. They're actually carried around in your bloodstream. That's how small they are. And raw water from Lake Erie has roughly 100,000 plastic particles per liter. And there's a fair amount of nanoplastics. So the question is, how much can the treatment plants remove through all of their processes of cleaning up that water from the lake? How much can they protect humans? And they're, they're collected data from four unidentified water treatment plants from Lake Erie to look at this. It's an OSU team. I, it was surprising how successful they are getting a lot of mm -hmm. that stuff out because up till now it had been, well, it's always there and we're all going to be dealing with it. Yes, it, it is impressive. And you think about it, I remember this story doesn't talk about bottled water, but bottled water is actually worse off than tap water when you're talking about plastics and what they're able to, what, what you're ingesting every time you drink that. And when you think, well, maybe because it's in a plastic bottle, that probably doesn't help. But they can do a lot. And the more they study it, the more they're going to be able to figure out the best way to get at the rest of that. Microplastic, salt, phosphorus. It's amazing that lake is still thriving because we keep pouring so much junk into it. Another interesting story. That's it for today in Ohio for Monday. We leave three stories on the table. We'll get to them tomorrow. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>